Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and if I could be the main character of a literary adaptation, when we were practicing, I said I'd want to be Lizzie Bennett, but on a submarine, and so I'm going to stick with it. I'm Kristen, and if I were the main character in a literary adaptation, I would want to be one of the fellowship in The Lord of the Rings, but maybe in a post-apocalyptic setting. That would be mm -hmm. cool. Hi, I'm C.D. Lee. If I were in a literary adaptation, I would have to choose the Redwall series and be at the Abbey with all the other mice eating all the food and drinking all the, the like delicious fruit cordials that they've made. <laughs> all the food in that series, I, I just want to eat it. And it sounds like a very, you know, aside when, from when um, shenanigans are happening, but most of the time it seems like a very peaceful life. I don't, I don't want to be in an adaptation where there's, you know, a large chance of death. <laughs> the real question is what kind of animal would you be? Um, I feel like I would be like a rabbit. I don't know. Ooh, the strong ones. You'd go around thumping people. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Bethany C. Morrow. And if I could be the main character in a literary adaptation today, because when you ask me these kind of questions, my brain forgets everything and I will be very upset at my answer later because it didn't take into account the millions of books I've read. Um, but I just finished This Poison Heart by Kaylin Bayron and I would absolutely play Bracey's. I would love, I would love to have that magic. A big welcome to C.B. Lee, the author of the Sidekick Squad series, Seven Tears at High Tide, Minecraft, The Shipwreck, and A Clash of Steel, a Treasure Island remix, which is coming out in September, as well as Bethany Simaro, the author of Mem, A Song Below Water, A Chorus Rises, and the forthcoming So Many Beginnings, A Little Women remix, which is also coming out in September. Did I get that right or did I butcher something? No, that was right. Okay, good. Sorry, my <laughs> monitor was halfway off and... I thought I, anyway. So tell us about your upcoming books. Why don't you go first, Carrie? Sure. A Clash of Steel is a remix of um, the classic Treasure Island and it's set in the South China Sea and has um, Vietnamese and Chinese protagonists where they set off in search of the legendary treasure, um, actual historical figure, um, Ching Shi, who is also known as Zheng Yisao. Um, she was a real pirate who lived and breathed in the early 19th century who was one of like, you know, the, I would argue the most successful pirate ever in history, but the treasure that they're looking for is her treasure. And, you know, it's a story about, you know, these young girls searching for not only treasure, but like defining who they are in a society that wants to define it for them. I'm so excited for this book. When I saw that it was based on, on Zheng He Sao, I was like, yes, I've been waiting for this for so long. All right, Bethany, how about you? So my book is called So Many Beginnings. It is a Little Women remix. It is set a, in the same time period and revolves around a family of sisters, the March sisters, and of course, Mammy. Um, but it is set in North Carolina on the island of Roanoke, and it's at a free people colony. So they have recently self-liberated and are living out the rest of the Civil War um, in this free people colony. And it's very much about the love that they have for each other and just their passions individually and how they've been raised, how their mother has raised them with a fierce love and um, encouragement and ambition. So it's, we'll talk more about this, but retelling is not a word that applies. I'm sure CB feels the same way. Um, it is absolutely a remix if you need to sort of configure that in your mind you need to think of like 90s 
like 90s R&B or rap remixes. So like sample a tiny thing of an original song in a loop and the rest of it is like new material, new perspective. (laughs) I'm super excited to talk about this. And super excited for both books. So if we want to just jump right into this, tell us about, I mean, you've already kind of started. What's different about these books? You said it's a remix. What? Tell us a little bit more about what's different. I'll say that when this was brought to me, they were called Reclaimed Classics. Uh, when Emily Settle, which is our editor um, at FNF, when she approached me, it was called Reclaimed Classics. And I remember when I spoke to her and was like, that does not make sense because these were never intended for us. We were literally intentionally omitted from these. So it doesn't make any sense to call them reclaimed. We're not reclaiming anything. Um, And I suggested Remix because Number one, culturally, I have a great appreciation and understanding for what Remix is, and it's a very clear delineation in my mind that this is, I'm not making any attempt to retell the same story, and both CB and I are coming from an extremely historical uh, position where it's, I'm showing you that it would be literally impossible to retell that particular story, the story of Little Women, by just making these characters Black. There's not like a Black version Mm-hmm. of that life. So I, I'm, you know, very, very vocal about the fact that people, you, I think you see how sociologically, like people just decide something and they will, it's like, if I'm out with someone and they're like, and they just assume we're family and they're like, oh my gosh, I can totally see the family resemblance. And we're like, super not related. So it's like, people see what they want to see and they bring into, you know, their, their imagination has a big role to play in how they, and how they read things. And so I think people are going to take any comparison or like any similarity and be like, oh, this was so, the stage so true to the original. And that's not my ambition at all whatsoever. So it's just very funny to me. Um, there's very little about it. I have the, I have the things that you would have to have to know that this is Little Women. And that's actually very few things. It's like literally the four girls and their mom and Lori. And outside of that, it is completely, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no professor though. Uh, there is no professor. Okay. I mean, come on. <laughs> Absolutely not. There's also no manuscript burning. Okay. So mm-hmm. we're not going to do that. that. <laughs> we're done <Dunson> for 80. <laughs> do you have anything to add, Carrie? Um, yeah, I, I think in terms of like what makes it recognizable as a classic, right? What do what do people remember about Treasure Island? Like there's a ship, there's a motley crew, there's a treasure, there's a map. And so, and, and if you want to d- d- dive deeper further, be like, oh, like young Jim Hawkins, you know, his mother's inn burned down. But like outside of that, once I take the setting, once I change the, the character from like a young English boy to a queer girl in in like 18th century China, then the story completely changes. Then everything else, like there's no direct, like this character is this doctor person or this character is this captain or this, there's no parallels that I'm trying to do where I'm taking elements. I'm not trying to follow beat by beat of any particular classic storyline. What I did was I took like, what what was, what I, what did I feel like was the heart of Treasure Island, right? The adventure, the map, the, the story and that like, you know, you know, sense of a um, finding a whole new world. 
And so that's what I took into the remix. And it's not, it's not a straight up retelling and it's not straight at all. So it's, <laughs> it is definitely, um, <laughs> it's definitely a overhaul of and what I hope in, in a fun way of, and what I love about Bethany's books and this whole series and like the pro premise of the remix classics is that different authors are getting to take eras of history that have been historic, like overlooked or like, you know, like Bethany said, we've been omitted from the history and like a lot of what people have considered historical fiction is a very, very narrow view that it's isn't fantasy. necessarily true, it's right? Fantasy. Right, because it's not like, like oh, this this is a fictional book set in 18th century New York. I'm like, yeah, but it's only white people. Like what, like that, that did, that's not historically accurate. And so when you present the like view of like, oh, let's focus on history that you may not have read about in your books, you know, getting to read, about, like, I'm still appalled that like, we did not learn about free people colonies in as like you know, a middle schooler and that it's not like common vernacular but and like and just in terms of pirates like people are like oh yeah Blackbeard was a dude uh Sir Francis Drake was a famous person no one knows who Ching Shu is and yet she had like 10 times as many ships thousands and thousands of people and like her legacy is so like like doing the research was so much fun but also as mm. as a person I was just like where has this been oh, right my. right I think that that it, the reason that it's important to do this work in order to understand why this work is important and the, in order to understand why it's so significant to us that these are not called retellings mm -hmm. um, is you have to understand the intentionality of omitting someone. You don't just mm -hmm. accidentally omit people. You don't just accidentally pr present mythology as history. That's not an accident. You're actively doing something. You're actively, you know, you have an agenda when you're doing that. So the fact that we could find all of this history, how would it change? How would it change the American imagination, which has been so intentionally curated? How would it change the American imagination to know about free people colonies? Well, then you'd have to explain to people where they went. And then you'd have to explain to people why we have plantation sites that have been, that have been uh, maintained, but not free people colonies. How does that impact the American imagination to know that this is where freed people were building and were thriving and was intentionally sabotaged, how would that change all of the stereotypes and everything that we hold? So you have to understand the intentionality of repressing, erasing, denying, omitting. And once you understand that that active thing is happening, then, then it makes more sense that like, okay, this is something that we have to intentionally combat. It is extremely important. If that history weren't important, it would not have been intentionally hidden. That is such an important idea. Um, and so I guess my next question to both of you is when authors are trying to, I don't know, remix their own classics or if they're trying to write something that is historical, how should they approach it so that it, it's not perpetuating that fantasy? I think it comes down to like your intention with your research, right? And coming to like, what is the story I want to tell and what is what is known culturally and what is not known and taking the time and responsibility and, and being willing to like 
just dive in and get your hands dirty and, and really look for that needle in that haystack. Cause it was, you know, like writing about this time period has been hard and especially writing about time periods that have not been historically covered. Like anyone who wants to write like a Regency romance set in Victorian England has like oodles and oodles of resources, right? Down to the very, like what kind of like, what order do they put on their clothes in the morning and which like, you know, how, how many cups of tea were drink and like what, like they're very, because we have so much data, we have so much firsthand diaries and knowledge because it's a period of fascination. And also it's a very specific, like history itself, right? It's very like colonialist and very, very like what people deign valuable to remember has been, you know, from a skewed perspective and knowing that like, oh, I'm going to try and represent like, or I want to write historical fiction from another perspective, knowing that like, we may not know everything. Like that was difficult for me as a writer because I wanted to know like from I wanted the level of detail to like what were people eating what did they wear how did they feel about this and the the documents that I did find took a lot of digging to find like what were the manifests on these ships what were the type of weapons they had on this boat and they were very like there was a lot of like details that I got that were like very dry and they were like often from the perspective of like people like conducting trade or like this is what they deemed worthy of writing down or like the events of like these battles with these pirates I got perspectives from like the British the Portuguese the Americans and like the Qing like imperial government and it was you know obviously the perspective like how do we eradicate this you know this threat to our our government and so wanting to understand the perspective of of like um just the economic plight of these people and like why people became pirates in the first place and why and like understanding more about like what you know a villager or someone without nobility or means or like someone who who did not necessarily have the time to work or took some imagination as well as like looking at like firsthand secondhand sources and then diving into like I read like graduate thesis and, and like looking at like people who took an active interest in this history are often like young scholars who are like, I feel a connection to this history. Wow. I would say something that's really important for people to understand. The first thing is you have to deprogram. I mean, if we're just being honest, like, uh, because what you understand as being historical fiction is nine times out of 10, not historical fiction. We have a shared imagination based on a mythology that was curated, some of which has historical elements. But I talk about like the Tiffany dilemma, which is if you're writing medieval, whatever, and it's, and you name somebody Tiffany, all of the readers who, by the way, don't know about free people colonies, but are like super duper convinced that they can fact check and like know everything there is to know about medieval times. And the thing is, yes, there's a bunch of data, but we have, but you also have to understand how socialization works. You've gotten the same information over and over and over and over again. You haven't gotten more information. You've just gotten repetition. And what that always does is it skews your understanding of history because now you've taken a tiny thing and you've replicated it over and over. And now that's ahistorical because it's an over-representation. It's, just like CB was saying, if you read a book set, I mean, just watch Friends or something, okay? So like Friends is fantasy. It's a fantasy. Frasier is fantasy. Um, any of these, like anything that doesn't tell the whole truth and that doesn't actually deal with the, it's, it's not inclusive of all of the people who actually exist, you have to start from the point of, literally being skeptical of your 
socialization. If you're not willing to do that, you are not interested in the truth. You are interested in confirmation bias. So if you are actually wanting to write historical fiction, you're going to have to get away from your imagination. You're going to have to accept that what you know is your imagination and is a curated mythology. If you can't do that, you can't write historical fiction because you are going to find things that do not support what you think is true. I have a lot of information in here. Like, here's the thing. We have this like false dichotomy about like good Northerner, bad Southerner. That's the, you know, and that's the civil war. Did it? And that's it. And I'm like, okay, did you ask any black people? Like, did you ask any black Northerners actually? Or did you ask, did you look at the people who were living in these free people colonies under the shadow of the union? Was their experience that the union were benevolent abolitionists? And also what about the abolitionists themselves? What were their actual beliefs? If I ask a random person on the street, they're gonna tell me that an abolitionist was somebody who was morally opposed to enslavement and, and loved black people. And that's just not historically true. That's not at all true um, for largely abolitionists were people who felt that there was a moral stain from enslavement wanted to eradicate the practice of enslavement so that the you know so that god could bless the country but they did not believe in the equality or liberation of black people and so the majority of their answer was a make laws to keep black people from moving to the north <laughs> so like okay you guys have to free them but don't send them here or the American Colonization Society, which was like, well, let's go incorporate a nation in on the African continent and send them back, let's send them back there to this place they've never been and don't know anything about. So, you know, you if you're not ready, if you're not ready to tear down your monuments, don't say that you're into history. Say that you're into mythology. Wow. So um, we do have to wind down this first part of the, the podcast. This has been fascinating. But um, what are some recommendations for places authors can go for research that's not, um, that's not shaped the wrong way? Um, no, you're going to have to bring your brain to, any, to everything. Absolutely. But like C.B. Lee said, we looked at a lot of graduate research that was done by people who had a vested interest in exposing and, and excavating certain things. So JSTOR was free during the pandemic and that was like amazing it was like the most <laughs> amazing thing ever like if you could just be on jstor all day and and the thing is i was finding a lot of stuff in end notes so i wasn't even getting you know a ton of stuff that a ton of stuff that was like specifically trying to talk about what i was talking about but people who had done the research and it didn't really like fit into what they were talking about but it was like this is kind of interesting and this is taking place on the outer banks they would have these like really in-depth end notes and I like poured through a bunch of people's end notes about the outer banks and then especially if I saw something that was talking either about Croatian sound or or Roanoke Island you just get this like huge dopamine rush um yeah. But JSTOR is huge. And again, it's not to like, it's not to be overly simplistic and be like, oh, as long as it's academic, it's, it's good. Um, sure. You're going to have to have enough information to cross-reference um, and make sure that you can spot as much as you possibly can any biases, but looking for literally direct information that's been preserved. You can start at places like Library of Congress. Um, I have a lot of 
written letters and things from formerly enslaved people um, that are a part of an exhibit at the Library of Cong Congress. Um, I was lucky enough to find one book that is expressly about this free people colony because this was an, you know, a historian slash academic who had, again, a personal interest um, as a Black American woman. So if you can find, so don't be discouraged if you can only really find like one thing that's really about what you're looking at. You have to like widen your understanding of how you're doing historical research. Sometimes you're looking for the house next to the house you're looking for because that house will have a little bit of information about this thing that, you know, so you have to, you have to get really creative in terms of like, okay, if I can't find out about this person, can I find out about somebody who knew this person? Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, get ready for a lot of scavenger hunts. Yeah, and looking at like, what I was finding was that a lot of people would cite this one person and it would be like, okay, I'm going on a like treasure hunt through the end notes of like the citations and everyone is citing this one book. Looks like I'm gonna have to track down this one book that's been out right. of print for decades and buy it on eBay. And <laughs> like what um, I actually ended up doing to get like firsthand accounts too. And just like, like tr I worked with a translator who was like, this book is written in Chinese. I can't read like traditional Mandarin and I need to like, understand what this actually means and so getting like looking outside the box and I also like emailed academics directly who also like if if you know once like a lot of academic journals are behind paywalls but you can just email the author and they would be more than happy to like oh yeah I did all this research someone is actively interested in what I did <laughs> yeah. especially because like I think what drive someone to spend like their life researching a thing they're excited about it they want to talk about it and so definitely I encourage you as as a writer to like you know find that person's like academic email address I'm sure they would love a break from like lecturing undergrads and like oh yeah I'm going to talk to this person who's like really interested in my my very niche subject or that one time that I did a thesis in grad school and you know now I get to talk about like my favorite soapbox. Thank you so much. That is all super helpful. I do not write historical fiction and listening makes me think like, maybe it's good that I don't write historical fiction. But it makes me want to though, because there's so much we don't, we don't know either because of ignorance or because we haven't had access to the information. I guess that's the same thing. Not quite, but so we're going to move on to the second part of the podcast. If you would like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check out our website. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there and who's coming on the podcast next. A summary for the submission is a young man leaves his home in Mexico with his younger brother in tow after his father dies at the Battle of the Alamo and his brother and his mother is murdered. Um, so what are some things that we like? I thought the imagery was very striking and the sentence structure was very like emotionally compelling because you have these deeply disturbing things happening and the author's very very bluntly stating like and the variation too of the sentences and descriptions that change throughout um I did enjoy how you know the opening image of of this novel is like oh the very first line's like I killed my brother mm -hmm. and then we flash back to like you know, this very harrowing journey where he has to protect his brother this whole time. So that really sets up that expectation of like what happens to these brothers? What is their journey? And now we see like, you know, the relationship at the end, but now we go back to the beginning and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I thought there was a, a cool promise being made about that brotherly tension there that I was excited about. And I'll totally agree with what you said about the sentence structure and the imagery, especially when they're describing like, a mummy and how she's 
dead and all those details were very creepy and well done. Mm-hmm. Yes. I really love, like, uh, I think both of you mentioned, I love this connection where we have him like desperately trying to take care of his brother. And at the beginning, we know that he ends up killing his brother. So something changes quite drastically. And I love that. I mean, it it sounds terrifying, but it sounds very um, compelling. I love Um, the, the, the part where he talks about what happened to the mother and how they found out. It happens very quickly, but it's very visually evocative. So um I think that that was definitely a strength is the the visual aspect um so what are some things that might need a second look I would say voice as soon as um and we've been talking about historical fiction so as soon as I see the date in the first sentence I'm immediately jarred um because I'm expecting a certain type of voice and it doesn't, it doesn't sound like historical fiction to me. I'll say that for me, one of the things that I really struggled with in this was the pacing. We sort of have this recollection where the main character is telling us about these events from some future point in time. And he doesn't really linger on any scene, really. It's, it's just a rush through everything. And I think there are definitely books that successfully do rec- like recollections, like um, Bless Me Ultima is a really good example of that, in my opinion. But I think you just need to give it a little bit more time to breathe generally. So if you can um, maybe look at that again, that would be a good thing. I think I'm with you on that. I wasn't really sure what to think because there are moments where I feel like it's not him telling the story. Like it almost sounds like an oral retelling. He's like, this is what happened to me. And, and, and it's fast the way an oral retelling is. Like you don't burrow down in those details if you're not writing something down. Um, I mean, maybe some people do, but there are also other times where I feel like it's supposed to be right in the moment, like when the wolves attack, but because of the way it's told, I didn't know that they were attacking until after he'd already been bitten. And so I, I feel like I, I can see it working from the perspective of like, I'm telling you this after the fact, but you'd need to lean into like the, I'm telling you this after the fact strengths and, and not try and combine it with an in the moment type of a story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked the more clear delineation between like reflection versus the present, because there was such like we go back and forth, right, where when we first learn about like his mom's death and then like later on, like after the wolves attack, he's doing more reflection of like his relationship and what she was like. I'm like, that would have felt more like I didn't feel like that was the time and place because it's like, oh, we're starting with the action, right? We're starting with, he has to get his brother out of town. They have, and then they're attacked by wolves and now they're they're recovering. And part of that felt like very disjointed to me where I was like, let's, are we in the present or are we recollecting now? Is this, what what is, what is the time and place for this? And so I think what the author could benefit from was like, okay, let's streamline a little bit. Let's put all the recollections in one spot or like do it not in the middle of the actions. Cause once you've started us in like, I feel like the present tense of this story is like, we start off with this very interesting future recollection where it's like, oh, I killed my brother. And then, but now we're starting 20 years ago and here's where we are. And then the story moves forward from there. But like drifting between the stages of like, oh yes, I remember when I was a child, my mom was like this. And this is what's currently happening is, is kind of disorienting. Mm-hmm. 
there was one other thing I wanted to just throw out there to everybody, um, the dream sequences where he kind of falls asleep a couple of times and has these really um, vivid dreams. I think for me, when I was reading them, I really wanted to know why he was having that dream in that moment. And maybe it went over my head. But as I was reading, I'm like, this is recounting information rather than giving me new information or new insight into the character. And so I wasn't feeling like a magical realism thing happening where it's like a coping mechanism and it wasn't like, it wasn't helping me to understand what was happening. It was just more information and some of it was the same information. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it just comes down to being intentional with which details you share when. Mm-hmm. Do you have any last thoughts? All right. Well, thank you so much to this author for submitting and thank you, Bethany and CB for coming on the show. Thank you, thank for, you having for having us. us. Be sure to check out their books, especially the two new ones coming out, A Clash of Steel, A Treasure Island Remix, and So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. Our next guest will be Margaret Owen, author of The Merciful Crow, The Faceless Hawk, and Little Thieves. If you'd like a critique from her, submit your chapter by September 23rd. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Blitz Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Blitz service, and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.